You are listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown. If you want to find out more about the Spring Midtown and who we are, you can visit thespringmidtown.org or find us on Facebook or Instagram. My name is Jackie. If I don't know you, haven't met you, it's good to be with you all this morning. Um, We are starting a new series today called Through the Lens of Grace. Do we have a graphic? Do you know? <laughs> Is it on Facebook? You say? Okay. Well, it exists. We don't, have, we don't need a, a graphic. Um, we are going to be starting a series called Through the Lens of Grace. As we read through the book of Romans, how do we understand grace? How do we understand this word and this this idea, this understanding of this incredible gift that's been given to us through Christ. So today we are starting that series in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. If you have your Bible or your phone, you can open up to it. Um, If not, just listen to these words. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man some might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, these are your words given to us to make us whole, to make us new. I pray that you would use these words to do that this morning. Father, may we not be the same people um, leaving this place that came here this morning. Father, may we see you. May we see you anew. May we see see you with new eyes. May these lenses of grace give us hope and joy in the future. We pray all this in your name. Amen. I, uh, I spent some time in my absolute least favorite place ever this week. I despise this place with every bit of my being, and yet I just had to go there this week. Um, that place is called Hobby Lobby. You can ask my children. I, like, get hot flashes when I walk through there. I, like, I start to panic a little bit that I'm, like, a terrible, I'm, like, not good enough to be walking through Hobby Lobby. I panic that I'm like behind in life because right now they have Christmas stuff and it is September. And and then I keep hearing on the news about how like you got to start Christmas shopping now or you're not going to get anyway. I just feel like super behind. I like have anxiety. Um, but as I was thinking about grace, Hobby Lobby came to mind because if you've walked through Hobby Lobby at any time in any place, you notice that there is grace everywhere in Hobby Lobby. It's written on posters, it's written on napkins, it's written on like silverware, it's written (laughs) everywhere 
everywhere you look in every aisle of Hobby Lobby, there's something that says grace. I also grew up with this grace kind of floating around because my middle name is Grace. But it was used in such a way that um, if I would do something that was clumsy or ridiculous, I have this one picture of when I was growing up, we had like an island and then a kitchen counter and I like to like put my legs back and forth like this. And one time I did it so hard that I fell and my parents were like, her middle name is Grace. And like, gosh, what does that even mean? Like we just kind of throw this word around as if we know what it means, but we don't really. And the problem is it's such an incredibly important word. It, it grounds us to the truth that to just throw it around, it, we've almost become numb to it. We've forgotten what this word actually means. Philip Yancey says, grace is everywhere, like lenses that go unnoticed because you're looking through them. So we want to ask this question, what does it mean to look at the world through the lenses of grace? What does it mean to put on these lenses and say, what is, what is it about our lives? What is it about our faith? What is it about Jesus that gives us these lenses of grace through which we understand the world? And we're going to be going through the book of Romans as we do that. This book is a book that was written by the Apostle Paul. It was actually a letter. It wasn't a book. It was written to a group of churches in Rome. And usually when Paul is writing letters, he's writing about a certain particular topic, or he's addressing an issue like division in the church or idolatry or false teachers. And this book has a little bit of each of those, but it's also like an overview. It's like a treatise. Paul's like, this is what it means to be in Christ. This is the gospel. He's laying out for the church in Rome and for us the nature and the intricacies of this good news in Jesus and how it affects our lives, how it affects our communities, it's answering questions like, why did Jesus come? What did he do? And why does it even matter? And as we study through this book over the next couple of weeks, we can't get away from grace. It's the underpinning of this whole letter because without grace, there is no gospel. We know what grace is because of the gospel, and we know the gospel because of grace. This grace comes out of God's love. God's go-to is love. It always has been, and it always will be. Grace is an expression of his love that we experience through Christ's sacrifice, his death, his life, his resurrection. The Father sent his Son into the world. This is what we read all through the Gospels, that he sent his Son into the world to save the ungodly, to save sinners, those who couldn't keep the law, and those who were constantly turning their backs on him. Those who had already decided, I don't want anything to do with this God. I'm going to turn my back on him. I'm going to worship something else. And I'm going to turn my life towards something else other than the God of the universe. These are the people that Jesus came to. And these aren't just people that we walk around and we're like, oh man, you really need Jesus. This is also us. Every day. All day. Paul makes it clear a little bit earlier in Romans, he says, there is no one that's righteous, not even one. There isn't one person on this earth who seeks or understands God. And if we have been living for any amount of time at all, we can recognize that the sin, there's sin and destruction that happens in our bodies. 
We are constantly at war within ourselves. Paul later on in chapter 7 says, I have a desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. For what I do is not the good that I want to do. No, it's evil. I keep doing it. I know that there's good to be done, and I know I should be doing it, and I have really good intentions, but at the end of the day, it just ends up evil, and it just ends up destruction. There is no amount of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps that will save us. We are absolutely powerless to make things right. We're powerless to make ourselves right. We're powerless to set the world right. We recognize that something is just a little bit off, but as much as we try, we cannot get it back on the tracks. And there's a conundrum with all of this, with this evil and this sin that just permeates our beings. And it's because from the very beginning, God desired to call a people to himself in order that as they committed the whole of their lives to him, they would live out his blessing on the earth. The whole earth would be able to experience the blessing of God because of the people that he has called to know him. He wanted his way of ordering the universe to be experienced and lived out so that we as his people and the world would experience flourishing and peace. That's what we all desire. And he wanted to use his people to do that. But they failed over and over. That's the stories that we read in scripture is them trying and them failing. And them getting kind of close and then failing again. Over and over they lived out of what Paul said above. That they didn't do what they should have done and what they wanted to do. They did what they shouldn't have done. And ultimately what they needed, what we all need is a savior. Someone that would come and set everything the way God intended. Someone that would bring flourishing and peace and blessing to the world. And this is what we read. This is that verse 6 that we started with. You see, at just the right time, we were still powerless and Christ came. This is what we celebrate in Jesus. This is grace. This gift of God, this getting what we don't deserve, and it flows from his love. God, from the beginning of time, he loved us and he desired to see his people and his world in peace and flourishing. A theologian, William Barclay, said, Jesus did not come to change God's attitude. He came to show us what God's attitude to men is and always was. He came to prove unanswerably to men that God is love. And this love of God, it doesn't just tolerate us. It doesn't just get us back to neutral or to zero. There isn't even an equation to make adequate that displays God's work in Christ and his love for us. In verse 10, it says, For if we, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through Christ's life? We're not only resting in his death where we experience salvation, but because he rose from the dead, we know that there's hope for our lives to be restored. This is that grace. And this is the grace that brings us to life. All this rain that we've gotten over the past um, couple of months this summer, 
talk about grace, right, for our, for our community and for the land. I was thinking about how grace, um, it doesn't just bring us back to zero. That, that rain that came down, our land is dry. It is dry as a bone. And it wasn't just that there was rain and it nourished the earth, but I was thinking as we drove through the mountains that there's so much green. There's so much beauty. There's, so, there's things blooming when they shouldn't be blooming. It doesn't just nourish the earth, but it brings green. It brings flourishing. It brings beauty. This is what grace does. It doesn't just get us to zero. It gives us all of life. But we don't get this. I don't know about you, but I don't get it most of the time. We talk about grace, like I said, we talk about it as if we understand it. We throw around, oh, that's grace, and oh, that's grace. But our lives tell a different story because grace is so incomprehensible that we're prone to reject it, actually, thinking that it's too good to be true or to work harder than we must to earn it. Carl Barth says, only when grace is recognized to be incomprehensible is it grace. Only when grace is recognized to be incomprehensible is it grace. What we usually do is three different things when it comes to grace. When we hear these words of Jesus and we hear the life that he offers to us, we're like, wow, grace, it's so good. Okay, well, now I need to work harder at it. For much of my life, I've lived by this phrase, if it's not hard, it's not worth it. I get a lot of satisfaction out of working hard for things and seeing things come to fruition. And because of that, I actually tend to make everything harder than it needs to be. (laughs) And I get a lot of satisfaction out of making things harder than they need to be because then I can solve problems that I've made, and then I get satisfaction out of it. If something is too easy, it's really hard for me to appreciate it. And yet grace says, rest. Take a break from striving. Your satisfaction can only come from Christ. And when you live according to getting your satisfaction from working harder and making things happen, you're only a hamster on a wheel. You're going nowhere, but you're absolutely exhausted. Grace sets us free from that. Or we want justice. We, we want to have our cake and eat it too. Because for the most part, we live in a world where grace reigns supreme. God has not left us to our own devices. He keeps us in line. And we want to live in a world where everyone is given a fair share and where people aren't judged by their status and where we don't define relationships based on economics. But only as long as I'm the one that's reaping the benefits of that sort of grace. We have a hard time applying that grace in other directions. We want people to get what they deserve. Maybe they can have grace. Maybe people do deserve grace. But only as long as they have figured out that they are receiving their due punishment first. They can receive grace, but after they've already recognized that They have to do the time or the punishment. But if that's the case, then it refuses to be grace at all. Grace says, you stole my jacket. Here, take another. Or, you stole my car and then asked me to drive you to Goodyear. 
but I know that's not your final decision. How about I drive you to Blythe? That's grace. That's the grace that we find in Jesus. Grace doesn't play by our justice system rules. Or we like to understand grace based on economics. We like to understand this return on investment, that you get what you earn, and if you're not willing to work hard for something, you don't deserve to have it at all. This is ingrained in us from the very time that we're born. And we usually think of grace based on this return of investment, that, God, that the grace in God is only activated by God getting a return on his investment. As if God is only distributing grace to the extent that it's worth his while. And I want to make God proud. I want to make sure his sacrifice was worth it. But there is never and will never be enough that I can do to make God love me. He went first. He always goes first. Always. Grace says, you're never going to be a good investment. <laughs> but grace doesn't play by those rules. There was never anything to prove because God's love far surpasses you proving your worth. He loved you first before you could do anything to earn it or do anything to lose it. God went first in Christ. And because of who God is and how much he loves us, his grace is relentless and it's constantly pursuing us. And the more he pursues us with his grace, the more we are rocked to our very core with how mind-boggling and profound it is. That this holy and perfect God who wants for nothing would choose to condescend, to suffer, and to die to show us his love and open the door for salvation. To open the doors to our hearts and to make us new. So if we start to understand and grasp even the tiniest bit of this grace, how, how would we act if we knew that we were fully loved? If we knew that this grace abounded day in and day out? In Luke 7, um, Luke is a gospel about the life of Jesus that tells us the good news of who Jesus is and what he did. And in Luke 7, there's this story about a woman who comes and anoints Jesus' feet with precious, costly perfume. Let me set the stage for you. There's a group of, like, very, very powerful, righteous Pharisees. And they're all sitting. I picture it this, like, long, lavish table with food just abounding. And they're all kind of, and Jesus is there and a bunch of Pharisees. And they're all kind of reveling in the fact of like we really deserve to be here isn't this great we all like we all get to sit at this table and we deserve to be here and look how hard we're working for jesus to love us and then this woman comes in she's known to be a prostitute she's known to be marginalized and vulnerable and it doesn't tell us, but at some point she had a significant interaction with Jesus to the point that she would take this, if she's a prostitute, you're assuming she probably doesn't have much. And she has taken what she has to buy this costly perfume so that she can go and lavish on Jesus because she has recognized the grace that has been given her in Jesus and she can't help but adore him. 
See, the Pharisees had no reason to throw themselves at the feet of Jesus. They were certain that their good deeds and their keeping of all the rules were enough to save them. That the keeping of the law, the keeping of these rules was enough to give them life. They were rich and they were powerful and had done enough to believe that they had earned their get-out-of-jail-free card. And this woman was the exact opposite. She knew that there was nothing she could do to make Jesus love her. She knew that she had nothing to prove that was worth loving or paying attention to. Her life was a disaster. She had been used and abused by almost everyone in town. She was an outcast on the margins of society and most of the time probably forgotten about, driven past and made people would make horrible comments about her. And yet, she had experienced the grace that's found in Christ. Maybe it was the way that Jesus looked at her. Knowing full well who she was, knowing full well her whole story, and with love and compassion, he looked at her, and not with shame and disgust. And this grace that she experienced in Jesus was enough to pour her whole self out to him. Even her tiny sacrifice of perfume probably seemed like nothing compared to the feast that the Pharisees had poured out for Jesus. But Jesus at the end of this story says in front of everyone, after she has basically humiliated herself, he says her many sins have been forgiven for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. And then he tells her, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Her faith saved her. What was this faith? Her faith that she was desperate for Jesus. She was desperate for this grace. She had experienced it once and now she needed it over and over and over again. She was desperate for a new heart and a new life. And she knew that that was only going to be found if she threw herself at the feet of Jesus, desperate for his grace. It was only in her humility, knowing that she had nothing to offer, that she couldn't earn it, that she could truly experience grace. Because when we realize that we have received something we don't deserve, it changes us. It changes our status. We're no longer defined by our worth. We're defined by Christ's worth. We're no longer defined by our sin, but by Christ's sacrifice. We're no longer defined by our work, by working so hard to the bone, but we are defined by Christ's work. We're no longer defined by our status of relationship to others, but we are defined by our relationship to Christ. And this grace produces freedom in us. It produces a freedom from judgment. We no longer have to look at the world and judge the world because we know that we have not been judged the way that we should have been judged. We're free from pride. We don't need to walk around acting like we're better than everybody else because we recognize the grace that has been given that we have nothing to boast about, only in Christ. And we have freedom to be generous. We no longer have to play by the rules 
by the economic or the justice rules that our world likes to apply. We now get to live by grace that redefines justice, that redefines economics, that redefines satisfaction, and we get to be generous. When we truly understand and are transformed by grace, we become people who are now seeing everything through these lenses. We become people who don't relate to the world based on status, or based on sin, but we become people who, like the woman, realize we have been given more than we could ever earn, and we give our whole lives to the person who has made that grace a reality. When we lived in Morocco, um, there was a phrase that people would say all the time. It's one of the very first phrases that you learn when you move there, and it's, you never give a dish back empty. And so our neighbors, who we barely knew, would come to us with these bowls just full of Friday couscous. That was the traditional meal that we ate on Fridays. And it was, it was an all-day um, experience where they would spend all day cooking. It was this huge labor of love. And so they would bring us enough couscous to feed an army, and it was just like us and our tiny kids. But we knew that even though this massive gift had been given to us, like I, there was no way I was going to be able to make couscous. <laughs> but I knew I couldn't give this dish back empty. So sometimes I would like get apples from the market <laughs> or something, something really easy, right, that I could just like walk down the street. Sometimes it was bread. Some, sometimes it was just something to not give this dish back empty. It was my... It was our, as a family, our response to this unbelievable gift that had been given to us. The time and the attention and the love that was given to us in this massive bowl of couscous. I could not repay it. All I could do was give back in response just a tiny bit of what had been given to me. Maybe a couple of apples. And that is our response. God always acts first. He always is giving us massive bowls of couscous. And our actions are only ever responses to God's actions first. We, we respond with thanksgiving. We respond with praise. We, we respond with humility. This understanding who we are in light of, in light of grace shouldn't bring a sort of dejection or depression we shouldn't walk out of here with a woe is me, I'll never be good enough. We should walk out of here of I will never be good enough. Praise the Lord he sent Jesus. How would I possibly live without understanding the love and the grace that has been lavished upon me by my heavenly father? Praise you, Jesus, that I'm not good enough and I will never be. And I praise you that I get to live with a humility that calls me to love you and to praise you and then to give that sort of humility and that generosity out to the people around me. Because this grace brings new social realities. We don't then live in the world, we don't live in marriages and in families and with our neighbors in the same way when we recognize the grace that has been bestowed upon us. We live with a sort of humility. We live with a generosity we live with a freedom to love because we have been loved and lavished upon us. Let's pray.
Jesus, this grace, we can never earn it. We can never deserve it. And yet, you have loved us from the beginning of time, and you desire for us to love you in return, Father. May our hearts be stirred. May you show us the ways that we have been given grace that we don't even recognize, and may that cause us to to give our whole lives to you, the one that has given more than we could ever ask.